Hey listeners, welcome to Finding History, the podcast where I, Victoria, examine the lives and actions of historical figures with an emphasis on monarchy. I find the monarchy fascinating, but I am most definitely not a monarchist. I also touch base on political movements, gender politics, and much more, and I do all of this with my own special twist. This podcast is a place I come to share history and how the actions of a few shape the world we know today, the good, the bad, and the downright terrifying. In this podcast, I do swear, so if you have little ones that love to parrot foul words, maybe wait till they are tucked in to give this podcast a listen. I talk about monarchy, religion, and colonialism, so one can expect me to drop a few F-bombs and see grenades, but all well-deserved, I assure. If you like what you hear and you want to share support or you just want to say hello, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Finding History. I'm your host, Victoria, and today I'm going to do a retelling slash book review on an obscure, not super well-known, but very interesting Arthurian legend, Les Romans des Silences. So this episode is going to be part one of a two-part series on Les Romans des Silences. And this was not my original intention, but as I got to writing and editing, it made more sense to break it up into two. Rather than have a potentially like two or two and a half hour episode, I am getting better at staying within the hour or hour and a half time frame. For the topics I choose and for my sanity's sake, like it makes the editing process and production process like uh, slightly easier with when I stay within that time frame. Le Roman de Silence tells the story of a child born a girl who is raised as a boy so that they can inherit title and lands when they come of age. They call the child Silence, and Silence grows to become an accomplished knight who participates in joust and battle and even goes to war. They turn out to be like a fantastic warrior, like a greater warrior than any cis-born male. And Silence also becomes an expert minstrel and spends some time exploring Europe and performing music. Basically, Silence becomes this like gender-fluid superhuman, and the author goes back and forth between using male and female pronouns. The edition that I got was uh, the bilingual one, which I think is the only one that is still available. Um, so it's it has the original text, which is uh, in Old French. And it also has uh, the English translation, uh, which is just parallel with the Old French. And it was translated by Sarah Roche Mati. I first learned about this story when I was researching for my episode um, a few months back on the Trobaritz, uh, the female troubadours of the Occitania region of the 13th century. One source I found, like, it referenced the book to demonstrate the female voice and touch on gender identity of the Middle Ages, and I was just, I was immediately intrigued as I had never heard of this story before, and so I did a little bit of digging um, after I published that episode. Silence has been described as being an Arthurian romance or post-Arthurian romance. It does not follow the story of Arthur, but it does mention Arthur in passing, as well as make references to uh, other characters and places within the Arthurian world such as Merlin makes a cameo, Cornwall comes up uh, quite a bit, and the mention of Tintagel, which refers to a city and a castle on the southwest coast of England. And Tintagel is first mentioned in Geoffrey of Monmouth's uh, Historia Regium Britanni in the early 12th century. Honestly, I've been referring to it as an Arthurian uh, tale simply because it mentions so much lore tied to that topic, and it was not created that long after the original Arthurian tales were published. I think analysis of the manuscript dated it to um, sometime in the later half of the 13th century. If anything, post-Arthurian is like a fancy way of saying like Arthurian fan fiction, uh, which this kind of reads as, and I don't say that to like throw shade at fan fiction. Like I've read some fantastic fan fiction. Like, I've read some Twilight fanfiction that was, like, a million times better than the actual Stephanie Meyer atrocity. 
So definitely no shade. It's just uh, this Book of Silence kind of reads to me like Arthurian fan fiction, which is not a bad thing. Le Roman de Silence manuscript had remained hidden for centuries. In fact, it was unknown to the world for about 700 years. It was discovered in 1911, and it was found in a manor house of a British nobleman in a box marked Old Papers, No Value, which also included letters from Henry VIII and a couple of random poems. So, common question, who is the author of this book, or this story, I should say? Well, that's a complicated question, but um, the best that we know of, or the most that we know, is the author is Heldris of Cornwall, and we only know that because they mentioned this at the start of the story and at the end of the story. Heldris of Cornwall is an Arthurian pseudonym, though, and we don't know much about the author beyond this fake name. There are some theories about who they might have been that I'll bring up in this episode and in the next one. This episode is going to be more of a book review slash retelling of the story. So I will be reading lines from the book, both in what I assume to be the author's voice and in character voices. And as always, I'll interject with my thoughts on the subject. Uh, this episode and the next one will be uh, full of spoilers. So if you're like, ah, wait a minute, like I really want to read this. Well, maybe save this episode and come back to it after you're done reading. I do have to issue a content warning with this episode. Yes, this story discusses gender and explores pronoun usage, but it's definitely a book of its time. Meaning like there are a couple of mentions of anti-Semitism, slander against the Irish, uh, sexual assault, and misogyny on every page. All these things still very much exist today, which is embarrassing, and reading this at times just kind of took me back to what the atmosphere of the 2016 American election was like. It's just, guys, it's just wild to me how little shit has changed. Uh, but, you know, that's what happens when you let col colonialism, like, run the world. But still, if this book was written now, like, in 2021, I'd like to think it would have been torn apart on Twitter. With that being said, a lot of this was pretty difficult to read, especially as a cis woman, but there were a few things I did enjoy about this, so I'll be discussing the good and the bad. Oh, also, how clumsy of me. Since I'll be discussing pronouns, I need to get more used to saying my pronouns. So I'm Vittoria, and my pronouns are she, her. You're welcome. C'est l'histoire du silence. This is the story of silence. Master Heldris of Cornwall is writing these verses strictly to measure. As for those who possess them, he commands and requests, right here at the beginning of the work he is creating, that anyone who has them should burn them, rather than share them with the kind of people who don't know a good story when they hear one. Heldris opens up with a long rant about the stinginess of the wealthy class, which... I can definitely get down with it is it to me though it reads like a 13th century tweet where instead of typing this out with his phone or laptop he takes to his scroll and is like before the story like really pops off i'm gonna tell you all about how the rich are trash or dear diary the rich people can joke signed hildris hats off to that topic i suppose you greedy nasty petty people this world is but a transitory place. You have so rubbed it of all pleasure that there is no play or laughter any more. You'll profit far less from it while you pile up riches, you fools. Heldris mentions avarice quite a bit, which means extreme greed for wealth and material gain. Heldris would hate Instagram and American capitalism, or he'd love it because... Even though he opens with, like, his hate for the wealthy, he gives avarice a gender, and, yep, you guessed it, he refers to it as a her. You are betrayed by avarice. Let her be, and say fee upon her. 
and in another line refers to avarice as uh, the wealthy class's sovereign lady and a wet nurse. Now, he could have just blamed the actions of men who seek power on men, but he had to give greed gender, which is totally odd to me. Like, this is kind of a common, this is kind of common, though, in medieval allegory to give everything a gender, but most of the bad things they give a gender, most bad things the gender they give them is female. Now, I'll read one more passage about uh, his disdain for the wealthy class, because it kind of cracks me up. Acids are worth much less than manure. At least, done enriches the soil, but the wealth that is locked away is a disgrace to the man who hoards it. If a man amasses a thousand marks, he soon thinks this is nothing, and yet he's afraid of losing it. And a man afraid is not at peace, he is miserable and ill at ease. Wealth only makes a man mean-spirited, and makes him toil without profit. All he does is soil himself. Three pages later, now we're at the beginning of the story. Once upon a time, Evan was king of England. He maintained peace in his land, with the sole exception of King Arthur. There never was his equal in the land of the English. First off, I love that he starts out with Once Upon a Time. Heldris continues to praise King Evan for a while by saying he is a just king who believes in law and order. That no man would dare to cross him, he is chivalric and wise, but the king found himself an enemy in the King of Norway, and the two countries went to war against one another. England and much of Europe was terrorized by the Vikings for centuries, but England really got their ass beat, like, a lot. The fact that they are referred to as a rival against England in this story is an acknowledgement of past resentment and grief. Even in the 13th century, it was still pretty common knowledge that the Vikings came and fucking raped everything and really left their mark on England. Even though they were gone, they were still very much, their presence still kind of lingered on, if you know what I mean. Norway and England were both equal in their terrorizing of each other, in the book Silence, as Heldris refers to the torching of lands, the lower classes dying of hunger, and misery, and it was just chaos in both kingdoms. Both of them wanted an end to this constant war. So King Begon, the king of Norway, suggested that King Evan of England marry his daughter, Ufem, and Ufem is the old French word for woman, or alas, woman, and she is referred to as a beautiful gem. King Evan was overjoyed with the offer of uh, the Norwegian princess Ufem, and told his men that he suffered for a long time and needed the love of a good woman. King Evan then sends his men out to sea, to Norway, to collect Ufem, and when she is brought back to England, they marry within three days. Heldris notes, I do not know how much the wedding cost, more than anyone could imagine. So the wedding festival lasts for a whole year, which Heldris refers to as a grand affair, and that's just how things were done back in the day. While I'm pretty new to medieval studies, I don't think weddings ever lasted a whole year, but don't quote me on that. Heldris then goes on another rant about how greedy men ruin everything, and that he wishes he could strangle them. Okay, easy chuckles. But this is a all a prelude to the act that affects all English women's future choices. So two rich-as-fuck counts marry twin girls. Then both counts dispute over the twins' inheritance and settle things by fighting. This ends in both of their deaths. The immediate result of their deaths result in fighting between men, who were grieving the count's death. Then King Evan breaks into a terrible rage, one of many rages, mind you, but he's supposed to be wise and holier than thou, like an Arthur 2.0. What a loss on account of two orphaned girls! What a way to lose good men! I am certainly very upset about this, but by the faith I owe St. Peter, no woman shall ever inherit again 
in the kingdom of England. So King Evan punishes women and all future women for the actions of two greedy men. Heldris then writes, Greed has robbed many a man of his freedom, and more than if he gets hooked, she makes him trot till he is dead. So he's still equating greed with female gender, which is bizarre, but not unusual for the time. Though I do think, this is my assumption, I do think when he was talking about the greedy, wealthy class, it was, it was probably misogyny, but it was also, I think he was also really just throwing shade to the rich class, because he does this many and many a times. Honestly, every fucking page is misogyny, but I do think he hates the rich. Though this act of equating greed with female gender is, it's still going on today, no doubt. We still definitely punish women and blame girls and blame femmes for the wrongdoings and fool actions of men, like tale as old as time. King Evan goes to Winchester. Winchester was a castle then, now it is a city. So some facts about Winchester. The Romans established it as a capital for a, about a minute, and when they left, it became headquarters for the Kingdom of Wessex. I think the royal family lived in the city of Winchester for a while before making the transition to London, and don't quote me on how long they stayed in Winchester, but I feel like it was like sometime after the Battle of Hastings, they moved like royal locations to London, but that's always been kind of interesting to me. I'm not too sure the history or why they made that choice. Anyways, it has like very old roots, and I like to imagine it as just being a castle amidst the forest at one point. So good, good imagery there. When King Evan arrives in Winchester with his men, they encounter a dragon in the woods, naturally. The dragon flew around and around, and when it had finished its rounds, it threw forth flames from its nostrils that charred the horses' backs. After the flames, it breathed clouds of smoke that hid the light from view, so they could scarcely see a thing. After the dragon kills and eats 30 of his men, the king announces that if any of his living men are able to slaughter the dragon, he will give them a county and his pick of any woman in the kingdom. Should we ask the women if they want to marry a stranger? No? Oh, okay. A knight by the name of Cador, who's introduced as Cador the Brave, an accomplished youth, he was the bravest knight of all, the best loved, and most valiant. Cator was already in love with a girl who was slightly above his station. Her name is Ufeme, and she is also in love with Cator. Really not sure why Heldris gave her a name so close to the Norwegian princess Ufem. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. Before Cater takes on the dragon, he prays to God, because one cannot be a good knight unless he is a good Christian. Well, brace yourself, because this prayer is ugly and wrong. You know what? I'm actually not going to read this whole thing to you, because it's really long. Like, it's a good uh, page page and a half with three anti-Semitic references and uh, a part of it discussing of, of, of the Virgin Mary, which just sounds like low-key pervy in my opinion. A virgin she was. Virgin you left her. I don't know about y'all, but this sounds violating to me. I know they were like real big on virginity at this time and every dude believed he was owed one. So this framing just makes it sound like God slash Christ married his mother and left her chaste, thereby not devaluing her. Like, thanks, I hate it. Heldris discusses circumcision and how the Jews still do it today and blames them for crucifying Christ. Actually, no, that's not the truth, Ellen. I don't really know why it was necessary to have like multiple anti-Semitic references in a prayer prior to killing a dragon, but Heldris thought it was necessary. At the time, England was about a hundred years away 
from expelling the Jewish population from England, a ban that would last, uh, I think, like a little over 300 years. Attitudes about the Jews in Europe were really awful and violent, genocide like left and right, so it doesn't surprise me that Heldris would write some anti-Semitic shit, like it was just really a reflection of a common attitude of the time, but I, whatever, you know, everyone was anti-Semitic, so, and they didn't feel the need to hide it. And personally, I would like to know when the lie began that the Jews killed Christ. I mean, I would, or, I mean, I would say that I'd like to know, but would I really like to know? I don't know. Like, there's some really ugly history there, uh, because everyone knows, everyone knows, uh, Rome killed Jesus, the state killed Jesus, and then lied about who done it, uh, and passed that lie down for centuries. My guess is the lie was started by the Romans. Like, Rome failed, but, like, Rome, the Roman Empire failed. It was done. Uh, but a lot of rich generals and other rich people stayed in Britannia and traveled throughout Europe, still keeping their money and then adopting Christianity. So, of course, they would spread some lies that, oh, it wasn't the state, it wasn't fascist Rome, it was uh, the Jewish people over there. That's just my theory. I actually think Rome is to blame for a lot of shit. Anyway, when Cater seizes the dragon, he sees that the dragon has stuffed himself as if he just ate too many edibles and like went crazy at the dollar menu at the drive-thru. The dragon was practically choking on blood and charred corpses, thus the author implying that greed has made the dragon weak. Cater kills the dragon after it disembowels his horse, and the dragon lets out this horrific yelp. The king heard this and then exclaimed in a courtly manner, Oh, where is my beloved Cator? The band of merry men cut the dragon's head off and carry it with them back to the kingdom. Everyone marvels at the severed head, and Cator was celebrated for his bravery. Cator comes face to face with Ufemi. They both like each other, but neither of them know they like each other, nor do they communicate it. Heldris goes on to discuss how ill Cator is, in part from inhaling too much dragon smoke, but also because Cator is sick with love. Comparing love to illness is a common trope in courtly love, but it goes beyond that. There are sources of it being mentioned in Arabic tales of love, and it is believed a lot of those tales greatly influenced the courtly love movement. When the king found out Cater was ill, he rushed into his bedroom. He took him and held him in his arms. He beat his breast and wrung his hands, he suffered so he nearly died. At once he sent for Ufeme. She was the wisest doctor in the land. Ufemi was confident she could cure Cater within two weeks, and the king promised that if she did, she could marry any man she wanted. Dude, just give her some gold. Like, don't be cheap. The girl had a bed prepared. In one of the very finest chambers, the pavement was made of beautiful marble. Next to the room was the garden, where both physicians and clerics had planted many precious herbs. Ufemi cures Cater within a week, though he is still sick with love. He goes into this long fuckboy rant about how Cupid's arrow has struck his heart, and he hates that he appears vulnerable before a woman, while also insulting women in general. Every night, when it grew dark, that's when Cador's struggle began. He was awake all night, suffering, groaning, for love had seized control of him, made him shiver, sweat, and tremble. On the next page, Ufemi is also suffering, her love for Cater grows stronger, and Heldris goes into a rant about how love grows from mutual consent. For where there is delight in speech, love grows from very small beginnings. 
She hates that her love is growing, as she has nursed many men before Cador, yet she cannot shake the love she has for him. She battles between the rational of her mind and the longing of her heart. These lines about her sickness is interesting, because to me it almost sounds like parallel with an STI, or implying an STI, but maybe I'm reading it wrong. They cut this disease from Cador. This young man is highly contagious. I saw him last night. So gracious, so handsome. I remembered his brave deed, and felt my malady grow worse. Eventually, the two of them spill their beans for one another, and the cats come screaming out of the bag. Either each of them will cure the other, or there will be no curing. The two of them are sick for each other, and they ask King Evan to make good on his promises. The king gives his blessing, along with a thousand pounds a year, and the territory of Cornwall. Both Cater and Ufemi are nervous, though, that King Evan will not grant them the right to marry, even though they both boast about how noble and kind King Evan is. They go on about honor and being overwhelmed by their anxieties, seriously like two pages of worrying. Heldris, in that initial opening of the story, declared that King Evan was equal to King Arthur in being just. Therefore, Evan keeps his word, but not without throwing shade at the Irish. Which makes me think that Heldris might have been English rather than French in real life. The king speaks well. He is no crazy Irishman. He has spoken like an honest man. Cater and Ufemi get married, and soon after that they conceive a child. The couple are both happy, they're ecstatic, but both of them know that King Evan would not let a girl inherit any titles or any land. Therefore, they make a loose agreement before the child is born that, if it's a girl, she will be raised as a boy. For if we have a daughter, she won't get a single shred of our earthly possessions, unless we arrange things so, cleverly and secretly, that nobody finds out what we're up to. And now nature gets involved here and starts discussing how they will make the most perfect mold, and Heldris compares the process to making bread. White bread, of course. Allow me. Now I'm going to create a masterpiece, just like the one who takes a sieve or sifter or colander when he wants to make beautiful white bread and sifts the flour through the sifter, sieve or colander and puts the extra fine flour on one side and the coarse bran on the other. You know, I made bread once, long before it was like a pandemic pastime, and man, that stuff rots in a day. It's a busy business. Heldris shifts from bread making to pottery in describing nature's process. Nature and nurture come up very often in the story of silence. Nature recognizes silence as a girl, and when it is decided that silence will be raised as a boy, nature becomes furious. However, Nurture plays a role in who a person grows to become, so Heldris uses the two as like allegories of gender, or for gender, like does biology determine gender or does the environment? Do actions define who people are and how they identify or can one not escape their biology? Obviously, I don't like agree with that logic of biology determines what your gender is. Um, but this is like, you know, medieval perspective, medieval exploration of gender, where they definitely define certain behaviors and activities as male or female. And I mean, we still do that today, which is so stupid. I mean, this is based off of the strict binary of the Middle Ages. And people still believe that people still believe, you know, medieval thought. I don't think medieval people were stupid, I'm not saying that, but 600 years later, if your thought process is still the same as like, hey, biology determines gender, well, I think you have a big problem. It's not even 600 years later, I think it's like seven, 800, when the, when the fuck did I say this came out? Like, possibly the late 
13th century, so, like, maybe sometime after, like, 1250. And it's like, yikes, bitch, you still believe that there's only male and female? Okay. Cater and Euphemi stayed true to their promise, that they would raise their girl child as a boy. Cater says to his wife, knowing that any girl would be left with no land to inherit, If we don't have a male heir, this girl child will wander in wind and scorching sun, in the freezing cold and autumn breeze. Then the two of them decide on a name. We shall call her Silence, after Saint Patience, for silence relieves anxiety. May Jesus Christ, through his power, keep her hidden and silent for us, according to his pleasure. Very, very surprised, Heldris did not make Cater jump into another anti-Semitic prayer. The child as a boy will be called Salentius. Cater calls on a seneschal, which is a fancy word for steward in medieval times. Seneschal, who is never given a name, but is given he-him pronouns, lives in a forest by the sea, and he was raised alongside Euphemi. Well, actually, I don't know about that last bit. Like, yes, he was, he lives in a forest by the sea, and that's how uh, Heldris describes him, but I couldn't tell if he was raised alongside Ufemi or if he was an older dude who was in love with Ufemi, or maybe not in love, he was like, he thought of her as a child. I don't really know. It wasn't 100% clear. So if anybody knows, let me know. Anyway, the couple thought he was trustworthy. So uh, the couple reached out to him and asked him uh, if they could, if he could protect their child and raise the child as a boy. The seneschal created new housing deeper in the forest where he could raise silence alongside with a midwife who was also sworn to secrecy. Midwife or nursemaid, I saw her referred to as both. And of course, she's not given a name. Or really a voice, so... Ah, uh, good old Heldris. Right after Heldris takes the time to explain the events that lead to Silence's concealment, he writes this. Now I have told you everything. How this strange turn of events came to pass, and how these people worked contrary to nature, and turned the child from her proper path, as I have just finished telling you. Heldris always seems to be on the side of nature, and you can tell throughout this story. While Heldris praises silence, he is praising the male attributes that silence commits. I mean, he calls silence handsome and charming throughout this whole thing, so it's interesting to me. I don't know if he actually considers silence as a character worthy of praise, or because silence is by a lot or is like a woman or born a girl and she's behaving as a man that that somehow makes her a superior woman because she doesn't behave like women she behaves like men i don't know it's it's complicated silence grows into the best behaved and smartest child there ever was but nature realizes they have been tricked and becomes furious you can imagine how disturbed she was, and how much she wanted revenge upon them, for changing her daughter into a son, and how much she despised the plan. What I found super interesting is when nature first creates silence, they give her a beauty of a thousand girls. Yet once silence begins being raised as a boy, it, well... Hell just drops the girl's part, and silence is referred to simply as having the beauty of a thousand. Which I actually really love that expression, especially when used for someone gender fluid or gender nonconforming. Heldris also continues to refer to silence as being beautiful, but blends it with like male appointed traits. I will tell you this much about silence. Just as he was the most beautiful of all, he was more valiant and noble than all the others put together. When Silence was older, around the age of 12, they became curious about their gender. Silence starts to wonder if they actually are a girl. 
Now, in other parts of the story, uh, Silence is given uh, moments of inner dialogue, but there's no inner dialogue when Silence is questioning their gender, like when they're first questioning their gender. Heldris just writes that they figure it out more or less. And I have to wonder, if a child was raised uh, isolated with just two caretakers in the woods, no outside influences, how would they identify? Silence does receive some sort of education and is given he-him pronouns, but still, we do not hear how Silence comes to the conclusion that they were born a girl. Silence is visited by their father, who explains everything. If, dear son, King Evan knew what we are doing with you, your shares of our earthly possessions would be very small indeed. Dear, sweet, precious son, we are not doing this for ourselves, but for you. Now, son, you know the whole situation. As you cherish honor, you will continue to conceal yourself from everyone. Silence replies very sweetly and briefly, as befits a well-bred child. So says Heldris. Don't worry the least little bit. So help me God, I will do it. I will conceal myself from everyone. Now this line has got me thinking a few things about the author. As stated earlier, we do not know anything about who the author was. Just that they used the Arthurian pseudonym, or just that they used an Arthurian pseudonym, and they refer to themselves as he, him. But many folks speculate if they were in fact a cis male. Personally, it's very hard for me to imagine a woman writing front-to-back misogyny. That's not to say that women cannot be misogynistic. They absolutely can be. Like, internalized misogyny is very much a real thing that all of us, you know, women have, whether we be cis or non-cis, have internalized misogyny. It's just embedded in our culture. Granted, some women have it a lot worse than others and are very proud of their internalized misogyny, like Google Ed Gein's mother, the serial killer Ed Gein's mother, or the 2020 American election results and break that down into color and gender and you'll find out that plenty of folks are pretty proud of their internalized misogyny. So it very well could be a woman who wrote this, but we don't know. It's, it's very hard to, we'll never know. We don't have anything to really go on here. It is lines like the one I just read, though, that kind of make me wonder, like, especially the bit about how they conceal themselves, like silence concealing themselves. Uh, you know, was the author concealing themselves? Was this actually a woman? Were they possibly trans or non-binary? We just don't know. Silence committed 100% to being the most perfect male in all of Christendom. The Seneschal, his male guardian, would encourage Silence to build up his endurance by taking him into the woods to chop wood or in streams to catch fish. He taught him how to ride a horse in the scorching heat as they would, to quote Heldris, Make a man out of him! The Seneschal watched Silence closely to make sure they did not behave too feminine because any hint of that and their plan would be in ruins. The story does not describe any sort of punishments if Silence behaved too much like a girl. So I don't think anyone, like, you know, hit Silence when they were behaving too feminine. Though the watching closely bit to make sure they don't behave like a girl, well, that just sounds like toxic masculinity, which, as we know, is tale as old as time. As Silence got older, though, the Seneschal was not as worried about the secret slipping. Silence had been nurtured as male and thus became the perfect male, in the eyes of Heldris. Silence was given the freedom to do as he pleased, which he would not have had if he was raised a girl. He was given a good deal of freedom, and by the time he was in his twelfth year, none was his master any more. When they practiced wrestling, jousting, or skirmishing, he alone made all his peers tremble. Silence begins to feel like a low level of guilt and worries that they are somehow being deceiving, like they're deceiving other people or everybody. 
This is when we get another cameo of nature versus nurture. Nature berates silence for choosing to live as a boy and that silence should be doing a woman's work, such as sewing or being adored. Basically the equivalent of get back in the kitchen. Don't make me say it guys. Nature brings up the beauty of a thousand bit I told you about earlier, but nature does not mention beauty of a thousand girls and never says it again. She just says beauty of a thousand. And I gotta wonder, like a thousand comes up a lot in this book in other ways. And I'm not sure the significance of that number, but like especially of this time period. Perhaps it was significant to Heldris, like it meant something to them. Um, I'm not too sure, but I wish I knew. Like I tried Googling it, but like nothing helped. Now it's time for nature to scold silence. There are a thousand people who think I'm stingy because of the beauty I stuffed you with. For I extracted the beauty of a thousand to create your lovely appearance. And then nature gets homophobic and just sounds like a conservative conversion therapist. Prepare yourself. And there are a thousand women in this world who are madly in love with you because of the beauty they see in you. There are those who love you now who would hate you with all their hearts if they knew what you really are. Silence thus freaks out a bit and vows to start behaving as a woman, but then both nurture and reason come into the conversation. By the way, I don't think I mentioned this, uh, Heldris gives nature, nurture, and reason female gender. Reason basically tells nature to piss off and reason is like, come on now, like you promised your dad that you would totally like keep this secret so you won't end up penniless. Like, don't you want to like you know, have money and not be a peasant. And anyway, like, do you really want to be a woman? Like, you won't get to have any fun if you adopt a woman's ways. Silence abandons their guilt and agrees with reason. Indeed, he said, it would be too bad to step down when I'm on top. If I'm on top, why should I step down? For I am a young man, not a girl. I don't want to lose my high position. Heldris then goes on to explain that Silence is a good, loyal person who genuinely feels conflicted about his decision. His heart remains divided on how to identify and how to live. That Silence goes through periods of hesitation and inner conflict. Heldris also adds that Silence showed great forbearance by asserting his decision to be male, since the decision plagued him from time to time. This explanation of how silence identifies could implicate a nuanced feeling of gender identity. Heldris describes the next act of the story. Now you're going to hear something amazing. And enters two minstrels. You might have heard me referring to minstrels uh, from past episodes though, um, though they do have like many different names. They are kind of like troubadours or as the Germans would call them, Minizingas. Anyway, two minstrels were traveling through England and had a whole lot of success in their travels. They made their way through Cornwall and planned to enter Brittany, the region in France, but stopped as it, become, as it was becoming harder to travel by night. Suddenly, they came upon the house where Silence lived with the Seneschal and his nursemaid, who, again, we don't know her name. The main tower rose above the woods, just a stone's throw away, but the fog was so thick they could hardly see it, for it was already twilight. They could see the forest growing denser, and they didn't know how to get in or out of it. Silence and the Seneschal receive the minstrels, and they all have a real jam session. When the seneschal goes to bed, Silence helps undress the minstrels and prepares their bedchamber. They are impressed by Silence being so well behaved and believe him to be a noble child. They ask him who his parents are and Silence gives a sly secretive response. When they all retire to bed, Silence lays awake in the night having anxious thoughts. Honey, join the club. His heart said, 
Hey, silence. Those clothes you're wearing and that sunburnt face make people believe that you're a boy. But what that boy has under his clothes has nothing to do with being male. If it should happen that King Evan die today or tomorrow, women would inherit again. And you are now so fierce that you know nothing of women's arts. You really need to learn something that would serve you in good steed for all that might come to pass. And if it should turn out that you have to keep up this pretense for a long time, you'll become a knight, as you well know. And then maybe you'll be a terrible coward, for I never saw a woman fit to bear arms in such a manner. Man, like, what's up with Silence's vital organs being, like, totally mean to him? Like, always guilt-tripping him or making him feel inadequate or wrong in some way? Like, is it like a metaphor for, like, re what religion does for queer people? Like, I'm, I'm genuinely curious. Silence decides that he will leave with the minstrels. He wakes one of the minstrels in the night and tells them not to leave, that he must go hunting in the morning, but to not leave just yet. He then goes into the woods to find some sort of herb that will make his complexion look more peasant-like to disguise himself. I mean, that is what Europe equated the class system on, like the more pale you were, that meant that you had more privilege and you were rich. Um, like you had the privilege of being indoors, whereas if you were darker or sunburnt, like you were a peasant. It's funny that Heldris makes all these like sly remarks about like the peasantry or like the working class when he, he like fucking drag the rich people. So I'm like, dude, what is it? You can't have both. Like you either are for the working class or you're against it. And also joke on the 1% of the middle ages, y'all are ugly anyways. So, and you grew up to just be ugly. Uh, lose-lose, I guess. At first tide, silence reached the sea. He wanted to escape from all his people. The ship floated free, and he went on board. The minstrels arrived immediately after, paid their passage, and boarded the ship. The sailors weighed anchor, hoisted their sails, and left. They were on their way to Brittany. Silence asks to become an apprentice of the minstrels, and they accept him under their wing. They recognize his disguise pretty quickly and see that he is Silence and not a random peasant. Heldris describes the moment when they realize it is Silence. Thus the rose wins out over the nettle, and nature's color becomes apparent. White and red are mingled. If anyone dares to believe it, he outdoes both rose and lily. When the seneschal realized silence was missing, he immediately assumed the minstrels had kidnapped him. Grief consumed him, and word got back to Cador and Ufemi, who sent hundreds of men throughout the land in search of silence. When I say everyone was upset by silence's disappearance, I mean everyone. Like, considering he was supposed to be, like, kinda hidden from the world, at least in his early years, he was pretty popular, like pretty well known. Ufemi and Kador were like inconsolable and kept fainting, which caused other nobles like the same effect. It was like this real like domino effect of grief. Though according to Heldris, the nobles like and anyone else had to hide their grief when they were in like uh, the audience of Ufemi or Kador because like any like slightest hint of any more grief on top of their grief would just send them both to their graves. So just suffer in silence like good Englishmen and English women. Silence's parents cried aloud. Silence, our beautiful son, what dreadful suffering you have caused us. We are so tormented by grief that we are more dead than alive. Silence's parents then propose that extreme action be taken against all minstrels. They had all minstrels banned from the lands, and anyone who performed would be seized and executed by fire or rope. Anyone who showed mercy to minstrels would suffer the same fate. I mean, do I need to say it? Like, blaming a whole group of folks 
for the actions of one person, even though no one can even prove that they were at fault, is the same kind of energy that like defined Europe and, well, the old world, really. Don't make me say it. Hell just believed that this was totally unfair. Like, girl, you wrote it. I don't care what anyone says, in my opinion, those minstrels were not at all to blame for whatever loss the Count had suffered. While all this chaos and grief is just happening at home, Silence is mastering the art of being a minstrel, or a troubadour, I guess, and he learned to play instruments so well that after a while he surpassed his masters in skill level. The gender-fluid superhuman strikes again. Silence was making a buttload of cash for him and for the other minstrels that he accompanied, that after a few years, four years to be exact, they began to worry that they would lose Silence, or that Silence would lose interest and branch out to do his own thing. That fear quickly turned into jealousy. If Silence left them, they could lose their income, but why was Silence so good at everything he put his mind to? Silence was already so handsome that he was clearly no servant, but a young man of quality. So I've mentioned this before, but I like that, uh, for one, Heldris always finds a way to praise Silence's attractiveness, and second, how he started off the story with disdain for the wealthy, yet he's saying some real classes shit, like, all the time. Like, girl, which is it? Oh, so I forgot to mention, so Silence... You know, he doesn't know, I already said this bit, but like he doesn't know what's happening in England, but um, he, we, he doesn't want to be found. Like, so he wants to further disguise himself. And to further disguise himself, he adopts the name uh, Maldui, which means badly raised child. The minstrels grow more jealous to the point where they are like, fuck it, let's put, let's put our words into action and murder this kid. And they go on for like, four pages about their loathing and plotting. And at this point, I already mentioned it was, it's was it been like four years since uh, Silence uh, ran away. So he's about 16 years old. Before the minstrels can strike, Silence has a terrible dream. During the night, Silence dreamt that wild dogs wanted to tear him apart. And because he feared the pain, he awoke from his dream in such a terrible state that he slept no more that night. Shall I tell you what he did? He listened to every sound the whole night through. He was so disturbed by his dream. And I'm gonna stop right there. So after Silence has a bad dream, who knows what awaits him? Did a sleep-deprived silence escape the two minstrels? You'll have to wait and see on the next episode. More adventure awaits in part two. So I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to show your support, you can follow me on my social media on Instagram and Twitter at Finding History Podcast. Until we meet again, stay safe, stay hydrated, wear a mask, and party on. Thank you so much for listening. Until we meet again. Bye-bye.